Good morning. I'll explain why we have those texts this morning in just a minute. Please join me in a prayer first. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us today, both here in Pembroke and all around, and we ask that as we gather before you and as we humble our hearts before you, you will continue to break through into our presence and into our reality. Confirm to us your love for your people, your desire to see us become all that you have originally intended us to be. Transform our hearts and minds. Make me, make us more like Jesus. Thank you that he is our king and that he came to announce a kingdom that knows no borders and that is not limited by the structures of this world. A kingdom that is capable of enfolding people from every tribe and every nation and who speak every language. Allow us to understand what it means to live for Jesus today in the realm where we find ourselves. And as we live by his principles, we ask that little by little, you would not only change us, but that you would change the world around us. So we pray thy kingdom come, as we so often do in the midst of the prayer that Jesus taught. Father, we ask that you would surround your people during this time of great isolation and distress, and that when we get discouraged, you will draw near and you will lift our spirits and lift our hearts. When we feel alone, we ask that you would draw near and remind us that your presence is always with us. We ask that you would comfort and console in powerful ways as we draw near to you and as we depend on your spirit. Forgive us for the times when we have allowed such a wonderful gift as fellowship and community to stand in the way of us drawing near to you and resting in intimacy with you. Draw us closer and closer to your heart. Build in us habits and disciplines that cause us to walk with you more carefully, more consistently, day by day, depending on you, depending on the resources that only you can bring. And then in that process, give us a new appreciation for what fellowship truly is when that fellowship is anchored in intimacy with you. Guide us this morning as we look into your word. Your word is a light unto our path. And I ask that as we look into Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, you would show us the links that are there that reveal a little more of what you are doing even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Did you notice that news broke earlier this week that William and Kate, otherwise known as the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, are trying to have a fourth child? You might ask, why is this news on this side of the Atlantic? Well, the Duke, William, the son of Prince Charles and the late Princess Diana, stands in line to follow his father as the eventual king of England. 
And though it seems rather far off, one day their eldest son, Prince George, who is now seven years old, stands in line to follow William. Stories about Queen Elizabeth, William and Kate, Charles and Diana, and others like them remind us that there are still places in this world where kings and kingdoms are still a present reality. Here in the United States, we don't serve kings, queens, princes, or princesses. Instead, we are led by elected officials who don't serve for life and who often find their tenure ended by term limits. Headlines each day trumpet to us the importance of their campaign promises, election results, appointments to office, policy positions, and executive orders. Everything they say, everything that they wear, everything that they do is elevated in such a way that we are told that all of this is important, even essential for us to take in. And quietly, subtly, Christians tend to forget that we're part of a kingdom too. The Gospel of Mark, probably the first written gospel, reports that after the, the death of John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth burst onto the scene by traveling around Galilee with this news. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Those words, while long awaited, were nevertheless shocking in their day. The heir of the kingdom had come, announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God, and the world has never been the same. Now, let me explain why I'm, why I'm bringing all this up today. We are living in a time that is punctuated by rather deep political division. While political platforms and parties tend to divide families, churches, and our country as a whole, reestablishing and understanding the kingdom of God has the potential to create a far greater sense of unity for us, despite our secondary and temporal allegiances. So for the next few weeks as we move toward Easter, the celebration of the resurrection of King Jesus, I want to explain our understanding of the central concept of the Gospels. The world has changed because the kingdom of God has come through the arrival of Jesus. Think of this as Kingdom 101. We're calling the next five-week series that we're beginning today Kingdom Unity, Agreements About Jesus and His Kingdom. So good morning, my North River friends. Some of us are gathered here in Pembroke. Many more are clustered around computers and tablets and, and phones all around the South Shore and even across several other states. But think of this. If we belong to Jesus, we are part of one church, and we belong to one kingdom, his kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. Thank you for those of you who are inviting friends, for sharing what you're learning, for choosing to be part of a church that dares to think that God is up to something good, even in the midst of a pandemic. If you find this helpful to your faith development, please tell a friend. Invite them to watch with you or to come with you. Find a way to get a cup of coffee together or take a walk outside and talk about what you are learning and, and about following Jesus together in our day. Here is one of the key observations I am seeing during this time. The more that our earthly institutions fail us, the more people long for and want to learn about the eternal kingdom of Jesus. So I have a question that is kind of sitting at the top of this message this morning. What do you hear today when you read the Gospels and hear Jesus saying that the kingdom of God is at hand? 
And what does it mean for you and me to be part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus? I'd like to make a proposal. For Jesus to announce that the kingdom had arrived, there must have been prior knowledge of God's reign and God's kingdom that called for a response. I'd like to walk you through some early signs of the kingdom that set up the understanding of Jesus' words when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First, there were signs all the way back in the garden, the Garden of Eden. So Aria read for you a few moments ago from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. They read this way, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 gives us a perspective that frames our understanding of the world in which we live. The world around us was not created by accident. The world follows the design of the designer. The second law of thermodynamics teaches that left alone, things in this world tend not toward order but toward disorder. What does that mean? If you don't take care of your house for 10 years, it will not be the same as you left it. It will be in worse shape than you can imagine. So this world requires stewardship and maintenance. When God created the first people, he made them stewards of his creation. Within his creation, Genesis 1:26 and 27 presents some foundational concepts about human beings, about us. On one hand, we are part of a created order, created just after the animals. Yet human beings are given a unique role within this created order. From the beginning, the first humans were told that they ruled. They ruled as stewards of God's creation. They didn't replace God. They were under God. They were serving God. They ruled over the fish, the birds, animal life, over everything that crawls on the ground. This is a position of responsibility, to care for the world and all that is in it. So think of it this way. If you care for something or some animal, even as small as your dog or the fish in the bowl in your room, you are stewarding part of God's creation and caring for it little by little. Let's look closer at this assignment or granting of roles that God does here in Genesis 1. There's an important question to ask. Who has the right to do this? And what does that tell us? Who had the right to appoint human beings to rule over the earth and to subdue it? The simple answer is that Genesis is telling us that as creator, God had every right and all of the authority necessary to do this. He didn't have to ask permission. All of creation was under his authority as the creator. In effect, from the beginning, God was king. And he granted authority as a means of governing over his creation through others. So this is the first clue. God rules over his creation. It is his domain, and he assigns roles. Out of all creation, only human beings were created in his image. Human beings are not gods like him, and in no way are as great or as complex as the creator God. And yet, we are nonetheless created in his image, and we reflect God. And there are some ways in which we are like God with some of those characteristics that bring us closer than the animal world. 
And you and I are given authority to rule by the one who holds ultimate authority. This is the first sign, the garden sign. Now here's a, here's a second early sign of God's kingdom. Kingdom signs marked key turning points in the history of Israel. A few moments ago, Katie told you of, uh, some of her thoughts about the Old Testament and that there are sometimes things that we don't understand that are going on behind the scenes. This is one of those moments. I didn't know she was going to share that, that thought from her small group Bible study experience, but this slides right into that thinking. There's one key verse in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord told him, Samuel, Listen to all the people that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as king. Samuel played an important role in Old Testament history. He was the bridge figure between the judges and the kings. Think of this. The judges ruled after the days of Moses and Joshua for about 300 years over the nation that would become known as Israel. After the days of, of being led by Moses and Joshua, God, appro- God appointed these judges one by one to lead. Some of these judges were tremendously faithful. Think of Deborah, the first female leader who we see leading an entire nation. Some of these judges were tremendously flawed. Think of Samson and his great strength and all the trouble that he created for himself. Then Samuel led as a prophet and as a priest who made decisions like the judges even though he didn't have that title. And Samuel anointed Israel's first two kings. First King Saul, and then when Saul began to move away from following God, King David. And so Samuel becomes that bridge figure between the judges and the kings who would follow. This chapter tells us more of the story, why Israel demanded to have a physical king. Samuel had elevated two of his sons, Joel and Abijah, as the next level of leaders for Israel. This is a classic case of why we often despise nepotism. These two young men did not lead well. And so this Old Testament book does not whitewash their behavior. Three specific complaints are listed. They chased dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. In other words, they used their influence to pad their own pockets, they made secret deals in exchange for bribes, and their decisions and policies perverted justice. It's no wonder the people declared, enough, and demanded a king instead to lead them. And Samuel took this decision by the people, this complaint, this request for a king, very personally. Yet it is God's response that is most telling here. God says to Samuel, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as king. This tells us why the Lord never intended from the beginning for Israel to have a king, and yet he enfolds this decision in the outworking of his great plan of redemption. The Lord himself was their sovereign. The Lord himself was their king. And one day, a king would finally come who would be the kind of king we were looking for. This is all pointing to King Jesus, who comes to bring the kingdom of heaven with him to this earth. Let's put these clues together. The Lord created this world and appointed people to rule, to steward the creation, to subdue the earth, and later he reveals through all of this that he was their true king all along. 
So there were signs of the kingdom in the garden, and kingdom signs marked key turning points in the history of Israel. Here's a third clue. Kingdom signs color the story of God's work through the ages. They color the story. I'd like to read to you two verses from the book of Ruth. Ruth is that little historical book that shows up just before 1 and 2 Samuel. It says, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while, or to sojourn, the King James would have said, in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. The book of Ruth and its story is a well-loved Old Testament book. It's one of my favorites. While the story focuses on one specific family from Israel, it is ultimately about the redemption by God of his people and concludes with the actions of a kinsman redeemer. This kinsman redeemer shadows what Jesus would do one day as the ultimate final kinsman redeemer for all of God's people. The story of Ruth is important historically because it points both to King David and ultimately beyond David to Jesus. And it is important theologically because Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. But I want you to notice something buried in verse 2 of this little book. It has to do with a name. We're told about the name of one specific man and his family, and the man's name is Elimelech. This is the story about the tragedy of the Elimelech family. The name Elimelech in Hebrew literally means, my God is king. Now, Ruth is a fascinating book. Back when I was in my seminary days, it's one of the few books when I was learning Hebrew that I had to translate from beginning to end for a project in this particular class. And reading it in Hebrew and translating it from Hebrew to English gave me a whole new understanding of some of the intricacies and the brilliance of this little book. So Elimelech means my God is king. The, the name El in Hebrew means God and the, the word Melech means king. Put together, my God is king. But not only does his name have meaning, Naomi, his wife, means my pleasant one, yet she becomes bitter from life's great losses. And their son's names mean something along the lines of disease and consumption. You get a sense when you read their names, you know where the story is going, that they're going to die early deaths. And this family starts out in an important place known as Bethlehem. Here is one of the first times we learn about Bethlehem, which literally means in Hebrew, house of bread or Israel's bread basket. So this is the story of a man whose name means my God is king who leaves the house of bread in search of greener grass in a time of famine. Both of his sons die and he dies and his wife becomes bitter. Here is our third clue about the kingdom. People gave their kids names like my God is king because they knew God's leadership in their lives. Unlike people in Samuel's day, they saw this as an advantage. So all the while Elimelech and his family were living in an idol-worshipping land, his name proclaimed that there is a God who is the true king. Ruth becomes the one who then takes the risk of choosing to live in a land where God is king, to pledge to follow Naomi's God, to love Naomi's people, and to remain faithful to that God to the end. And we see that God blesses them and redeems people who choose to seek him. 
And so the story of Ruth becomes a microcosm of the grand picture of everything that God is doing from beginning to end, where people reject his leadership as king, and yet when they turn back toward him, they find great blessing from following his, in his way. And God redeems people in the midst of all kinds of impossible situations. Ruth, in a sense, is a story of the entire gospel with little bits of history that pointed forward to David and ultimately to Jesus and bringing hope to you and me. So these kingdom signs color the story of the Bible that is causing us to yearn for a Redeemer King who will one day come to make sense of this entire world and to renew it and to restore it to its original splendor. That's the final picture of what God is doing. It's not about removing us to one day go far away to heaven. It's about the end that's even beyond that, that what God plans to do is to bring heaven to earth and renew the earth in its original splendor and his people will dwell with him in a renewed and refreshed and reinvigorated and redeemed way. And then there's a fourth sign of the kingdom that we find in the Old Testament scriptures. Kingdom themes filled the songs of the people of Israel, otherwise known as the Psalms. Let me just give you a, a quick overview of some of the kingdom themes that we find in the Psalms, and this is by no way complete, for there are far too many for this purpose. Psalm 5, verses 1 and 2, a Psalm of David. David writes, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Psalm 44, verses 4 and 5. This was a psalm written by the sons of Korah who were worship leaders. Korah was the chief worship leader for all of Israel in the, in the days of King David. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. Psalm 45, verse 6. David writes, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Psalm 47, verses 2 and 6 through 8. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. Psalm 74, verse 12. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. And one more, Psalm 145, verse 1, another Psalm of David. I will exalt you, my God the king. I will praise your name forever and ever. Throughout the Psalms, kings and worship leaders celebrate God's rule over all the world that he is the true king, he is the ultimate king, even King David, while he rules on the throne of Israel, celebrates the true king that he follows, our God. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus was announcing the good news that God is actively reclaiming his kingdom and installing his son to draw the nations. The wise make Jesus and his kingdom their top priority. The final 
piece that we see this morning in this Kingdom 101 look that sets up this series of where we're going for the next four weeks that will follow and even into Palm Sunday and Easter has to do with snapshots of Jesus and the Kingdom. In John chapter 18, as Jesus is going through the interrogation brought upon by Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate says, You are a king then. Based on the Old Testament examples that we've seen already, we should not be surprised to hear Jesus announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived. And then we find these three snapshots that connect Jesus to the kingdom. All who encounter Jesus the King must decide where their loyalty lies. That's the first snapshot. While Jesus was being interrogated by Pontius Pilate, he spoke of his kingdom. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world that rule through sheer power. His kingdom reigns through the hearts and minds of his servants. His kingdom is not established by power in this world. But make no mistake, here in a life and death stakes conversation, Jesus acknowledged that he is a king, that he has a kingdom, that his kingdom is from on high. And yet Pilate handed him over to die and even posted over Jesus on the cross, perhaps mockingly, king of the Jews. Here's a second snapshot from Jesus in the Gospels. Those who truly recognize Jesus the King decide and get on board with his reign. How different from Pilate's response was the response from one of the thieves at his side who said to Jesus as they were all hanging on the cross, the three of them side by side, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't have time to waste. He recognized who Jesus is by his bearing, who Jesus was by his words, by the generosity of his spirit as he forgave those who had tormented him. And he immediately declared his allegiance. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You are the king. And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Somehow this dying thief understood what Pontius Pilate in all of his power failed to see and he grabbed hold. The wise grab hold of the train of the king. And then a third snapshot. It comes from one of the great signs from the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, and it pictures loud voices one day calling out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. When I read those words, or when I see those words, I think of the hallelujah chorus, and I think of those mighty choirs singing those powerful words that he will reign forever and ever and ever. The Bible points to this final scene that will unfold when Jesus comes again to set the world right, to restore all that is broken, to gather his people 
to set up a physical kingdom finally in this world where every eye recognizes that Jesus is king, every knee bows before him, every tongue in that day confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's where we're headed to, folks. And so all of this is the backdrop of the series that we're going to walk through for the next four weeks as we explore what does the kingdom of God mean and what does it mean for you and me as Christians to participate in and to be members of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus was announcing the good news that God is actively reclaiming his kingdom and that has already begun and installing his son to draw the nations. The wise make Jesus and his kingdom their top priority. And the question for you and me is continually, will we risk, will we risk our reputations to publicly identify with Jesus that one day when he comes, that he will recognize us. I printed out a prayer that we're going to close with today, and I wonder if you would read this with me. Dear God, you are reclaiming your kingdom from the broken systems of this world, and you have installed Jesus as our one true King. As I put my faith in Jesus, transform my heart and my mind. Help me to find joy by putting his kingdom and his priorities first in every part of my life. And Lord God, I pray that as we work at putting you first in life and seeking your kingdom first, that you will allow us to experience joy in life by knowing that we are aligned with you, that we are aligned with your plans, that we are aligned with where your spirit is leading us. Guide us this week every day. Help us to see the authority of Jesus all around this world as we, can as we continue to reclaim your kingdom and your presence around us as children of the King. Thank you for this wonderful congregation. Thank you for what you are teaching us in this season. Thank you that you are even causing in us through all of the small failures and grand failures in leadership that takes place in this world, you're causing us to cry out for the true king and for a better kingdom. Lead us to that place in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for being with us. I look forward to the next few weeks with you as we tackle this concept of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus. And I hope you have a wonderful week. And if there are thoughts that are provoked by this message, send me an email, drop me a note. I'd love to continue the conversation with you.